Who are your people? Who are your people? By that, I mean, who are the people that you depend upon and identify with? In an age marked increasingly by isolation and loneliness, we all need individuals and groups that can provide us a sense of belonging and togetherness. You know, maybe it's a a supportive group of friends from childhood that you've stayed connected with. Perhaps there's a sense of camaraderie at your workplace where you really get along with your coworkers, you're going through some of the same things together. Maybe it's extended family or neighbors in your town. Maybe it's an online community that has spawned to address these kinds of rootlessness in our age. Who are your people? To help us answer that question this morning, we'll be considering Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. So let me encourage you to turn there now. Mark 7, Mark 3, verses 7 to 35. If you don't have a Bible, take, the, take a Bible. We've got a bunch at the back. Uh, they're our gift to you. There's nothing really that we can give you any better than the very Word of God. Uh, we'd love for you to have that. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen the Lord Jesus come onto the scene. At his baptism, God the Father anointed God the Son with God the Holy Spirit and began Jesus, his public ministry. We've seen Jesus authoritatively teach and heal and exercise demons and even forgive sins. As he said in chapter 2, verse 17, the healthy don't have a need for a doctor, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. However, this kind of attitude set him at odds with the religious leaders of the day. So after Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, last week's passage concluded in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And thus we arrive at chapter 3, verse 7 this morning. We'll have three sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus establishes the new Israel as those who follow him and do God's will. Jesus establishes the new Israel as those who follow him and do God's will. So read with me Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boargenes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Well, our first section is found in verses 7 to 12, entitled, Jesus's Ministry to the Crowd. We won't spend a ton of time on this point, but I'd like us to notice a few things. First, notice Jesus's massive popularity. You see that in all the, the places named in verses 7 and 8. We've seen this really throughout Mark's gospel. Anywhere Jesus goes, he's getting mobbed. Why? Well, that's the second thing to notice. Why was Jesus so popular? Well, we get the reason there at the end of verse 8. Uh, notice it says, when the, great, when the crowds heard all that he was doing, they came to him. The point is that the crowd isn't necessarily drawn to Jesus because of his teaching, Mark doesn't portray them as, as eagerly anticipating the kingdom of God. They're not really wondering, who is this Jesus? No, they've heard about the miracles. They've heard about the healings. And so as verses 9 and 10 show, they want to get in on those benefits. This will be a recurring theme throughout Mark the fact that the, the crowd is, is kind of morally ambiguous. Sometimes they seem to genuinely want to hear Jesus and learn from him. At other times, they're drawn to the spectacle of what's happening. All right, sometimes they'll welcome him gladly into Jerusalem. At other times, they'll shout, crucify him. Uh, so we come to verse 11. Just because these crowds want to be near Jesus, it doesn't prove they truly want to follow him. But there are some people who truly do know who Jesus is. That's what we see in verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. You know, notice how the, just the very sight of Jesus overwhelms these demons. They fall down and cry out because they recognize that they stand no match for this Jewish teacher. 
because he was far more than a mere religious teacher. He is, as they confess, the son of God. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. You remember Mark put the bottom line up front. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So Mark's told us, then at Jesus' baptism, the father said, you are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. Okay, so Jesus knows it and we know it, but the crowds don't know it. The demons know it, but we don't get any hint that the, the humans understand what's going on here. This is, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the son of God? Well, it's to say that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's the eternally begotten second person of the Trinity. For all eternity, he has existed with the Father and with the Spirit. This man, Jesus, is both truly God and truly man, the Son of God incarnate. So while human beings saw with merely physical sight, well, here these demons recognized with spiritual insight that this man is truly God. Far from Jesus being another merely enlightened human teacher, the truth is that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's unique in this respect. That's what makes him so different from every other religious teacher in human history. Jesus alone is God-made flesh. He's not just another spiritual guru walking around. He's the only Son of God. Well, but then what's up with verse 12? If that's the case, why does verse 12 say, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known? Well, it's just what we've seen in the past couple weeks. Jesus didn't want people to know his true identity, at least not yet. Because Jesus was in the process of slowly redefining people's expectations of the Messiah, the Son of God. Right, so for Jews in Jesus' day, for the Messiah to come, for the Son of God to come, well, everyone expected that individual to inaugurate this military and political kingdom, to kick off the Roman government. And so Jesus was right, and the crowds were right insofar as, the demons were right insofar as they knew that Jesus was the Son of God, but nobody really knew what that meant, that as the Son of God, he had come to lay down his life, that as the king of Israel, he had come not to create a political kingdom in the here and now, oh, but a spiritual kingdom, God's kingdom on earth. And so Jesus was slowly changing people's expectations. Thus, the messianic secret, as this is sometimes known, would last until Jesus' death and resurrection, where he would climactically reveal his true identity and mission. Because at that point, the decisive acts had been done. At that point, Jesus would be fully known as the Savior of the world. But until then, this secret remained. This was Jesus' ministry to the crowds. Let's turn now to our, our second section, found in verses 13 to 19, entitled, Jesus' Ministry to the Apostles. Verse 13 gives us the overview. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. In this, what we find is that Jesus is going to be establishing a new Israel. That's kind of the main idea of this point. 
Jesus is establishing a new Israel. So you remember what Deanne read in Exodus 19, right? Just as the Lord called Moses up the mountain to establish the nation of Israel through the giving of the law. Well, so now Jesus is atop the mountain and he calls the apostles up to establish a new community. And and again, more than just a new community, it's a new Israel. That's why Jesus appoints 12 apostles at verse 12, or rather 14 says. You know, because it's actually a quite random number, isn't it? For the Jews of the day, seven was the number of completion and perfection. There were five books in the Pentateuch. God is one. There were 13 minor prophets. There's 150 Psalms. Why does Jesus choose 12? Well, it's because they correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. God had intended ancient Israel to be his people and to represent his glory to the nations. You remember he said to Israel, be holy as I am holy. But how did Israel do at that job? Well, they failed, didn't it? Didn't they? They constantly broke God's law. They refused to repent. They indulged in idolatry and immorality. And thus they forfeited their role as the people of God. They broke the Mosaic covenant, the very covenant which established them as the people of God. And so when Jesus goes up on the mountain, when he calls these two, these 12 new representatives, we're to understand that now these 12 men are to be the basis, the foundation for the new people of God. Yet this new community wouldn't receive a, a new law, as it were, but a new orientation to Jesus to Jesus himself. And so you see in verse 14, look there. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Notice the the two reasons Jesus was calling these men. First, that they might be with him. That is, Jesus' strategy for making disciples was spending time with them. I wonder if you've ever noticed that. To spread God's kingdom, Jesus didn't fundamentally launch a massive public relations campaign. He didn't hire a marketing executive. He wasn't going to spend the majority of his time with the crowds. No, he called those whom he desired. They came to him so that they might be with him. Friends, Jesus' strategy was relationships. Jesus' plan to make disciples was to invest in individuals because he was after more than mere intellectual transformation. So I don't know a lot about physics, but my guess is physics textbooks do a pretty good job of explaining physics. Sure, it's helpful to have a physicist with you. It's helpful to have explanations on here's how the experiments run. You can ask my dad about all that. You can talk to Jesse. But in godliness and knowing what it means to image God rightly on this earth, it was Jesus' example that would be the best teacher of all. Far better than any manual that Jesus could hand on how to be a Christian, how to glorify God, how to love your neighbor. The best thing that Jesus could do would be to call people to watch his life, to watch his ministry. And so it is for us today. 
As the 12 apostles were to witness how Jesus responded to the hurting and to persecution, to opposition, trials, success, and that was to be the foundation for how they responded to these things, well, so that's how God intends for us, even as Christians, to live. This is why at Trinity Church of Bedford, we put such an emphasis on kind of life-on-life discipling relationships, because Jesus did it. And and again, I think the reason Jesus did it is that in learning, depending on the topic, but, but so much is caught rather than taught. So much of learning is better caught than taught. In the Christian life, role models and mentors, people discipling us can be hugely helpful in showing us what Christian maturity looks like. So Hebrews 13 will say, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, right? So spend enough time with these people that you're able to consider how they live and then follow their example. As Jesus's strategy to make disciples was to spend time with others, I wonder what that looks like in your life. How are you trying to disciple and do spiritual good to those around you? The fact of the matter is that this can be messy, right? Uh, This isn't, again, a simple program. No, this can be time-consuming at times. And so I think one of the best things you can do is, you know, again, follow Jesus' example in simply folding people in to the regular rhythms and routines of your own life. You know, if you're going to be eating lunch, why not do it with another Christian and talk about the book of Romans together? If you're going to be headed to the grocery store, why not text another sister to go together? If you're going to the park, send something out. Say, hey, do they want to come today? This kind of discipleship that Jesus is initiating is, it's less about adding events to our calendars and more about adding people to our lives. It's more about people than events. I I think this is a challenge for us, right? We live in a kind of calendar-driven society. I do it, you do it, I trust. That's not a bad thing, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is we need to include people in in our lives. We need to have margins so that we can be with others, just as Jesus was with his disciples. I remember for, for Kate and myself, we first experienced this as adults uh, from our former pastor and his wife, Garrett and Carrie Kell. So we were newly engaged, and, and Kate ended up living with them for a little bit uh, before we got married. And it was just so helpful as adults to be thinking through, what does it mean to be a Christian spouse? What does it mean to be a Christian couple? What does it mean to be Christian parents? There are lots of good books about all those things. But what was really helpful was seeing how they, how they dealt with his getting stuck in traffic on the way home from work, the kids getting sick, a car accident, ministry struggles, financial uncertainties. As we saw that and how they responded, that was hugely helpful in helping us to know how we should respond. Just like with the 12 apostles, we didn't just hear about godliness, but we saw it in action. And so, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, if you're a member of this church especially, to think about how you can do spiritual good to those around you. 
you can invest in spending time with other Christians. You know, unlike Jesus, we won't have perfectly put together lives to put on display for others, right? So Jesus can just say, do exactly what I'm doing. We definitely don't say that. But some of the times, the most helpful things in life is seeing how others confess and repent, right? Sometimes those can be the best examples. In our parenting, in our relationships in the church, we are, we want to be the kind of people doing spiritual good with those around us. So Trinity Church of Bedford, Jesus' strategy for making disciples was to spend intentional time with people, and that's our strategy as well. But it's not the only thing he called these apostles to do. You see that in the end of verses 14 and then 15. He called them so that, they, so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You see, being with Jesus wasn't the end of the road, as it were. No, being with Jesus was for the sake of being like Jesus. Because did you notice that these are the exact activities that Jesus has been up to for three chapters? What's he been doing? Preaching, casting out demons. So he says, watch from me, and then you do it. In calling these 12 to be with him, he would send them out to do his very works as well. So verse 16 states, he appointed the 12, and we get the list of names. Notice the foreboding name at the end, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As we'll see throughout the following chapters, Jesus' ministry was not primarily to the crowds, but to the 12. He was calling them to be with him, so that being with him, he would send them out. Let's turn now to our final section, found in verses 20 to 35, entitled, Jesus' Ministry to His Family. And, and what we're going to find in these verses is our very first Markin sandwich, okay? What in the world is that? In the book of Mark, he, he has this kind of literary strategy where what he's going to do is he's going to start a story, interrupt that story, and then come back to that first story. And the reason Mark does this is to try to help us interpret the stories. They're mutually interpreting. So in our case, verses 20 and 21 begin the story of Jesus' family. Verses 22 to 30 interrupt it. And then verses 31 to 35 return to the theme of Jesus' family. So look at verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Okay, pause. Jesus is leading his public ministry. His family's upset. And then our second story begins. So you see that in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by, Z by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. You know, over the previous two weeks, we've seen the religious leaders, oh, their opposition has been steadily mounting, hasn't it? At first, they asked questions. Then their questions turned to accusations. And at the end of last week, we saw that they began a plot to take Jesus' life. And so here we see the pinnacle of their rejection. Because, I mean, it's one thing to say, 
I don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That's what Jesus was doing. Jesus' family, rather, was doing. It's an entirely different thing altogether to say that Jesus is demonic. To say that he is satanic in his word and works. Yet these are the the ludicrous accusations that are being launched. And so we see Jesus' response in verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. In short, if Satan is casting out Satan, Satan, you've got nothing to worry about. He's on his way out. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus is not empowered by Satan. What then is happening with all of these exorcisms? Well, we get the answer to that in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. In this, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 49 to prove that he is the great liberator of God's people. So Isaiah 49 states, Can prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the strong man be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Friends, who does Isaiah 49 say will rescue God's people from the strong man? It's the Lord, isn't it? In Isaiah 49, the Lord says, I, it's really, it's emphatic in the Hebrew and the Greek. I will save my people. I will rescue them. And so in Jesus' response to these scribes, we see not only a defense of his ministry, but an assertion of his divine identity, that he is the Lord, accomplishing the salvation that only Yahweh, the God of Israel, could accomplish. Yet Jesus' response comes to a sober conclusion there in verse 28. You see it. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemy and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. These are weighty words. Literally, verse 29 says, he does not have forgiveness eternally, but is guilty of an eternal sin. You see, an eternal sin produces eternal guilt, which will be eternally unforgiven. What exactly is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The good news is that if you're worried that you have committed it, that's good evidence that you probably have not. We see in these verses that these scribes have come to a settled conviction that Jesus is demonic. They attributed his righteous and holy actions to Satan. And so this wasn't just like, you know, a passing thought or a word spoken out of turn. As one commentator summarizes, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a specific, active, and final choice to declare the person and work of Jesus as being demonic in origin. 
You know, this was the conviction of those who literally sought to murder Jesus. And so, you know, there, there is a warning for us here today. You know, if you feel the hardening effects of sin in your own heart, in your own life, for those who feel more calloused in their rebellion against God this year than last year, for those who feel an, a growing opposition to Jesus and his people and his work, you know, there is a warning. It, it's God's mercy that you would hear this warning. Jesus says in John 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So friends, if you have that desire to come to Christ, well, that's, that's proof that it's not too late. If you have that, that drawing to him, well, it's not too late at all. Friends, if you will trust in Christ's perfect life, in his substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross, dying for the sins of his people, and then his glorious resurrection from the dead, well, you're not too far gone at all. What did, what did Jesus say? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, if you will but trust in Christ. And so we arrive at the, the final part of our passage this morning. As Mark resumes the story of Jesus' family, so beginning in verse 31, we read, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. You know, you can almost picture his family embarrassed by Jesus' behavior, you know, trying to rush him out of there and get back home. I can just picture like parents at the park, like, come here, come here right now, right? I mean, you can just picture it. The crowd says to Jesus in verse 32, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. In ancient Israel, in a patriarchal society, family was everything. From the, from the Gospels, we know that Jesus enjoins people to care for their families. That's what makes verse 33 so shocking. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, here we see two shocking realities. First, God's family is redefined. Second, a disciple's family is redefined. For the first, we've, we've kind of already covered it. But as God's representative on earth, Jesus is redefining whom God's family is. You know, previously, as we've seen, it was the nation of Israel. But now Jesus is reinforcing the point that just as it's not his nuclear biological family that takes priority, so also it's not his broader ethnic family, the nation of Israel that now makes up the people of God. As Mark read, it, it's going to be people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, whomever does the will of God in following Jesus. Now, they are part of God's family. Again, this is the same point Jesus made in choosing the twelve. This is the same point that our scripture readings have been making today. Did you notice that the first Peter passage repeated the language from Exodus 19? All right, so, so just listen. In Exodus 19, the Lord says to Israel, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Ancient ethnic Israel was God's people. But then you get 1 Peter 2. And Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Friends, who is Peter talking to? He's talking to Christians, non-Jewish Christians. Now they are God's people. And this explains those verses from Revelation 7, right? Why were those 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes? Well, it's that it's a symbolic number representing the full number of the church. You know, it's not literally 144,000 people in heaven because the very next verse, which Mark read, says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Friends, Jesus wins. His plan works. The new Israel does not disappoint. Well, sure, we're sinners, no doubt about it. But Jesus is redeeming sinners. That's why he came. Now the church, the new Israel, it's not based on blood. Uh, you read that in the, we read that together, Article 25 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's not ethnicity that binds us together. It's Christ. It's following God's will in following the Lord Jesus. And so this leads us to our second thing we should notice. Jesus' words redefine a disciple's family. For the Christian, as much as we are to love and serve our biological families, our true family is now our spiritual family. Christ is our elder brother. God is our father. And in the church, we have brothers and sisters. We are a family. Again, I know I've said this before, but that's why we call each other brother and sister. Christians don't do that because it was like a marketing ploy of pastors. Huh, how do we get people to feel more, feel more invested and involved here? No, it's Jesus' idea. Jesus' own affectionate title for those who followed him. That's why we sang that song, Brethren, We Have Met to Worship. We're brothers and sisters now, and we're, we want more people in that family. We want our biological parents and our biological children. We want our, our friends and our neighbors to get in on that family. And so Trinity Church of Bedford, it's precisely because we're part of that family that we're called to love and serve one another. Right? We have a special responsibility to weep with the weeping, rejoice with the rejoicing, encourage the faint-hearted, rebuke the backsliding, serve the hurting, and pray for each other. This past week, I was listening to an interview with the Welsh preacher, Derek Thomas. He didn't grow up hearing the gospel or going to church. He came from a broken home and got saved after his first year at university. And he saw there was a, a Christian campus fellowship. It met right above the bar where he used to get drunk and vomit. And so that first night, he went upstairs, 
kind of past his old cronies, as it were. He went upstairs and said, quote, I saw 150 students with Bibles, and they were talking about Jesus. And I remember distinctly feeling, this is my family. These are my brothers and sisters. Friends, that's exactly right. We're going to be diverse on a million different things, right? We come from different parts of the country. We come from different parts of the world. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicities, different educational backgrounds, different politics, different sports teams. But we're unified by Jesus. We're unified by God the Father. We're unified by the Holy Spirit, right? And so the reason Jesus kind of re makes a new priority list for the disciples is because we have more in common with each other than we even do with our unbelieving relatives and friends. Right? For all eternity, with one another, we'll be rejoicing around the throne of the Lamb and dwelt by God's Holy Spirit, inhabiting the new heavens and new earth. We have more in common with each other than even we do with our unbelieving relatives. And so as we conclude, notice that this final section, it's really been about Mark's fundamental question, who is Jesus? The irony is that while the scribes think, think that Jesus is demonic, the demons themselves confess Jesus is the son of God. The religious professionals don't get it, and Jesus' family doesn't get it either. I wonder what about you? What's your answer to that question? Who is Jesus? So we began this sermon by asking, who are your people? But perhaps more fundamental to that, we need to ask, who are God's people? In our passage, we've seen it's no longer ethnic Israel, but the church, the community of faith, those who have decided to follow Jesus and follow God's will, who know Jesus as the son of God and have been adopted into God's heavenly family. For those coming from good and loving families, this is Jesus' challenge. My people are now your new family. Love them accordingly. For those coming from broken homes, this is Jesus' encouragement. My people are now your new family. For those who follow Christ, we now have mothers and brothers and sisters, and God is our Father. So Trinity Church of Bedford, may God give us grace to live out such a glorious vision of love and unity until Christ comes to take us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We marvel that you would adopt even us into your family. It's amazing grace. Father, we praise you for the kindness you've shown in sending your son. How deep must your love be to send him to die for our sins? Father, you have worked it all out for the glory of your son, for the good of your people. We pray that as a congregation, we will be marked by that kind of love and service as befits the family of God. Father, we pray that you would add more to that family. If there are any here that do not know that love, we pray that you'd open their eyes to it. Father, we pray that we would be, that we would be a community of people known for our love and service because of what you've done for us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to stand now and sing on page...
15, oh, how good it is. Uh, no, notice again, even just the lyrics of that, that first verse. Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit and faith and unity. Let's stand and rejoice in that truth on page 15. Oh, how good it is.